Hey, Internet, my name is Jonathan Fisk, and I am here to rescue you. You have fallen under the influence. It is time to wake up. Jesus Christ is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal now, and he won't be long anyway. Welcome to the Mad Christian Saturday morning. Chill. No, no, almost. Hey, Internet, my name is Jonathan Fisk, and I am here to rescue you. You have fallen under the influence. Time to wake up. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You are paid for by him that makes you immortal now. And he's not going to be long anyway. This is the Mad Christian Saturday morning chill. We got a number of things. Your questions, as always, in my attempt to give you biblical answers. Thoughts I've been dealing with as I wander through the dystopian madness that is our present age. As well as a little dive-in visit from someone who I've been promising a couple times now. And the few times we've tried, like one time he got in and then it bumped out because that was the big election night. There was too much, too many people that night, if you remember. Uh, joining us here, and uh, and then last week we just had our, or maybe it was two weeks ago we had our signals crossed. So uh, Dr. John Bombero will be joining us uh, at nine thirty, about half an hour here. To talk about culture, uh, woke revivalism, what does that mean? Uh, how do you be a conservative Christian in a world where politics is just liars doing what they do, right? So uh, he'll be joining us again in about half an hour. But before we go there, I don't know, I usually have something ready for you at this point or some sort of really big conviction about what I want to share with you because it's important to me. It's what the Bible has revealed to me this year. And I got some notes here in front of me and they're, they're, all, they're all good. They're important. The one about shame, I really do want to talk about this morning. But maybe even more important than that, if I can send one message to everybody anywhere right now, like this is uh, December 19th, 2020 by the kind of Roman fiscal calendar. Uh, right now, slow down. Whatever you got planned for the next week, like look at it and cross like a quarter of it off. Whatever doesn't have to get done. Just stop and breathe and remember what time it is. First, the day that the Lord Jesus Christ has made might be the last one right now. (laughs) Second, a fallen evil age in which the sons of darkness look to profiteer at every opportunity and the sons of light, wise as serpents unto their wiles and yet innocent as doves strive to sojourn together in trust and faith, trusting in Christ and what he said to us to govern us and lead us through the midst of it all. We're in that time too. And then we're in like this post-2020 election U.S. thing, <laughs> whatever that means, right? It's really made me rethink like what I think my grand myth, my meta narrative is. And the U.S. always played like a big role in it. I mean, hello. And it still kind of does. I mean, it definitely does. I'm, I'm committed. I pledge allegiance. It's just, I don't know what I'm pledging to anymore, right? I, I kind of got to wait and see what that thing turns into. We're going to talk about Declaration of Independence later, uh, one of your questions and, and you know, Constitution, all that. And I, I don't mean to start a debate about that right now. I'm just like... It's not that my loyalty has been challenged. I just don't know who I'm loyal to anymore or, or, or to what end, right? I, I, uh, and to the republic for which it stands and all that, yeah? Oh, which republic is that? Tell me. Anyway, uh, so it, we got that time. That's another clock going on right now. But the ecclesiastical calendar, and I sound really loud and old and, and fuddy-tuddy-ish, what ancient Christianity has always remembered at this time of year is that Jesus is coming. We call it Advent. You can even buy like really secular Advent calendars. I don't know why, because Christians buy them, I guess. I, I don't, I don't, they grew up with C.S. Lewis and Narnia, and so now they buy Advent calendars with Legos in them. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't, I don't got anything against it necessarily, right? But on, on the surface by itself, it's not much of a religion. Hmm? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's a bit sold to you. Uh, anyway, Advent 
is just a word that means coming. And it is the ancient church's, early church's recognition that the imminence of Christ's return, the certainty, the nearness of his coming, should always be remembered every single day. You can get the scholars today like to talk about how, well, that kind of wore off after about 100 years and they figured out he wasn't coming back. And then they had to develop a new theology of how this and that. And it's like, yeah, 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 okay, guys. I mean, you just you just don't think he's coming back. <laughs> That's what that comes down to. Uh, no, they didn't forget that. Not everyone has always forgot that. There has always been Advent in the calendar to remind us, wait, 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 wait. It could be today. That's what we're really waiting for. We just passed the end of the church year, which we always have as the end of the world. And now Advent starts the church year, the new year. We're in our new year, not in 2020, 2021. Who cares about that? We're in, we're in Advent 2025. Our Lord was born sometime around 2025 years ago. Uh, and, and we're in the coming up to the point where we remember that on December the 25th, even though we all know he wasn't born that day, probably. I mean, it, it, one in 365 chances, right? But it's not even that good. And he probably wasn't born that day. Anyway, we're going to remember that day. So who cares? It's about remembering that this did happen in real time to a real person. And that this happened for our salvation, which is going to be accomplished by the cross right around that Passion Week, that Passover week in the Jewish calendar, uh, into the Easter, which uh, there's debate about what date that on. That, that's on. That has to do with the moon. Would you believe it? Uh, and, <laughs> um, uh, but all of this is to remind us of who we are. And that even as we prepare to remember his birth, his birthday, if you will, his incarnation in our flesh, he's been a lo- around way before the birthday, right? So that's why birthday doesn't really work. It's not like you really didn't, you know, uh, exist before this. Um, and not that you, you exist before your birthday too. Hello, unborn. But you get my point. Uh, the incarnation, the enfleshment of the divine, the holy God, begotten of the Father, everlasting God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That's a big deal. It's, it's like a big thing that happened. And in real space and time with like angels singing over what the poor, the immigrant, the one no one wanted around. Yeah, the shepherd, the shepherd. What was he doing? He was keeping the food for the king because everyone knew back then you need ruminant meat if you want to be healthy. And shepherds, well, sheep, they're the easy way to do it, honestly. Uh, strange. They don't taste as good. I get it. But but th- that's what they were doing. Right. And so they're keeping the king's food out in the, out in the fields. And who comes Herod, right? Who comes to talk to Herod? Well, some magi from the east. Who comes to talk to the shepherds or the angels over over the sky, right? And this is the Christmas story. You know it from Charlie Brown, or you should. Of course, are they still going to play that this year? It'd be amazing if they didn't cut it. Uh, what a testimony to our fall. Let me say that. Any case, uh, Advent is not all about the incarnation. That's Christmas. Advent is remembering that there was a time before the incarnation a time before Jesus was here among us, and they were waiting for his coming then. Just as we are waiting for his coming now, only we see more clearly because they had a shadowy mirror of what would come to pass. We see it uh, fully revealed, right? Snake on a pole versus guy on a cross. Like, big difference, right? <laughs> yeah, a resurrected body versus dead prophet in a promised land with some people who don't really, ah, they kind of do, but then they don't and all this, right? And the king and blah, blah, blah. Long story, Old Testament, but we are not in a completely dissimilar sojourn, especially the diasporatic nature that Peter talks about in his epistle to us. Uh, cast to the winds, unsure, and, and this time more than ever, we all want to claim a brand or a church body to make us feel safe. We all want to cling to the name of somebody else than Jesus to make us feel safe. And I'm not one of those just Christian people, by the way. I'm a denominational guy. But at the same time, I'm recognizing our denominations are not doing what they're supposed to do. All of them. They're all collapsing like a lot of other institutions. I don't know why. Well, I think I do. But I'm, you know, I'm a kook if I tell you why. 
we can all just see the effects of this and what it comes down to is that our attempt to unify an idolatry of ourselves and our organizations is collapsing as God breaks our language again with the clock and COVID time. That's the big philosophy side of it. But it's going to turn us in another direction where we have to remember something, which is that we are individual, responsible human beings. And just because I'm saved by grace doesn't mean I'm not an individual, responsible human being. I'm an individual, responsible human being saved by grace. (laughs) So I know I'm saved. I know my God's the Father who loves me. And has set me here to remain in this veil of tears as an individual responsible human being with a keystone to this life called the Bible. A a, a divine writing which opens unto me a storyline that is not mine but has grabbed me by the hair and yanked me into it from my decay and despair into, well, a hope. A hope. It's not the kind of happiness that I can go after this show and be like, yeehaw, I'm just going to feel good all day. No, 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 no. What nonsense. The hope is a much more patient thing. The hope is a much more subtle thing because it doesn't ignore what's here, which is the pain that is more than it should be and not what it ought to be. Pain which will be removed on the day of our Lord's return, it is yet here, and most people don't know why. The Christian gets to know why. And then begin to say, oh, now that I know why, I'm going to start handling mine differently. I'm going to stop letting it be my master. Like the rest of my mammon, right? It's going to stop ruling me, I'm going to rule it. I'm going to use it on the basis of what I know. It's not even mine, it's Jesus's. He gave it to me. I'm a slave. Except, it's better than that. This is where the shame part really wants to go this morning. <laughs> you were his slave. That's why you were afraid, because you knew you were a bad one. He didn't just remind you you're his slave and, oh good, you're a good slave. He said, well, you're a bad slave, so check this out. Now you're my son. Didn't see that one coming, did you? No, nobody did. <laughs> no one sees, well... Uh, The unbelievers don't see the evil coming to destroy them, nor do they see the God coming to save them. The believer begins to see both and trusts in the God a whole lot more and is willing to get destroyed then. It's kind of a weird thing. I remember various times in my life hearing people talk about death in different ways, whether it's like a bucket list or whether it's like uh, actually looking forward to it. You know, I feel like my time on earth is done. I'm ready to die. Oh, I hear older people say that. I once heard a younger guy, though, and his, uh, he had to be in his 30s. I was in my 20s, so I thought he was like, you know, ancient or something. <laughs> He's forever been here and around. He knows a lot of things. He probably was like 32. <laughs> but anyway, he was talking about what his father told him, who was probably more wise than he is for sure. And uh, his father had... had always reminded him that at the end of a day when things didn't seem like they ought to be that this isn't the world you're supposed to be in but Christ is returning and we are but diligent brothers until he does right I don't know if he used the word brothers but I think it's a good way to say it um and I remember him saying that and I remember sitting there and this was like a a, a preparation for teachers who were going to work together that coming year and um I remember thinking like wow that's like really true and I totally don't feel that way at all I really would prefer the world to keep going on. I like it here a lot. And yeah, when Jesus comes back, that's awesome. I'm all about dying and going somewhere after I die, but I'll make sure to get my bucket list done here. Now, I never would have said bucket list. I've always really been bothered by that term. I just didn't know why. I think I know why now. 
but I nonetheless would have had that same kind of approach to life, which is that I can't die today. You want to know where your shame comes from? It comes from thinking you can't die today. Trying to. as part of it, at least. Now, I'm going to tangent into shame for a second. Let's come back to death today. Hopefully at the end here. But I want you to get this. Why are you so distraught by what you see when you turn on the news? I'll tell you why without bringing up anybody's name except for the devil's. It's the children of the devil, which is every man who's not a Christian. Every woman who's not a Christian, if you're going to get annoyed by me not saying woman. All people. That's annoying. Every man who's not a Christian is the devil's. And in that regard, is built into living with a religion of shamelessness. That is, of striving to remove and pretend I have no shame. To live shamelessly according to my conviction. i got to convince myself to do that. And you have people who really achieve this and they become quite evil when they do. And you have cultures that are based on this shame status kind of thing. Uh, the U.S. is certainly one at the time. China is another. I mean, they very much live on status. Yeah? That's why you want to be rich so you can have status. You don't want to be rich for the money. You want, you want to be rich for the status. That's what you're really after. That's what we live in here. Shame or not shame. Shame and shamelessness, the attempt to get rid of it and live shamelessly, is the devil's religion. It's actually what the fall did. It made us shameless where we should have been ashamed. We run off and hide from God rather than come to him in actual reverent repentance, which would be a proper form of, well, guilt, shame. I am ashamed. Lord, forgive. I forgive. It's done. But no, we don't do that. We try to say, I'm justified as I am. Now, here's the beautiful, beautiful thing about this. Okay, so you wonder why the world is the way it is. Because everybody's shameless. They actually are for themselves. And then they're shaming everybody else, trying to say, oh, look at me, I'm better. But then in the closet, they're not. Somehow, some way, everybody. We all got it in our heads. We all know what's going on. We just don't want to admit it because we're all trying to live this little status game. And if you admit who you really are, well, you, you lose, right? So you can't. You got to be cool, right? And, and again, it's about pursuing shamelessness. And that's why you don't get it. Why people are like, how could they do this? It's because they have no shame. We as a group, as a body, the U.S., our American culture that we're exporting is the exporting a culture of no shame the wrong way, okay? Now, what's amazingly beautiful is that Jesus Christ is already, I mean, this is kind of always this way, he has already anticipated our problem, and he's provided us the solution in his only one true and holy religion, Christianity. And it is this, it's a different kind of shamelessness. It's so weird. You would think we would need to be more ashamed, like I was saying before, but that's, that's really not what he does when he comes out of the blue and hits you. He doesn't come and say, well, you need to be more repentant now to prove that you're worthy of being shameless. He simply shows up and says, you're shameless for all the wrong reasons, and you're like, oh, I'm going to die. And he's like, now be shameless because of me, and you are, if you'll believe it. Because you can only be it through faith. That is... <laughs> You either believe you're his son or not. And if you're his son, why are you worried about falling away? If you're his son, why are you worried about doing the wrong thing for yourself? Why don't you just worry about what he said? Because then you're going to do the right thing when you know what he said. But you're so worried about doing the right thing for yourself, you never listen to what he said. I think it's because you don't believe you're his son. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying that Christianity in America is atrophied a little bit here. <laughs> we're weak. We're, we're a faintly glimmering wick that's about to be blown out by the present zeitgeist of the age. Don't know what zeitgeist is? Look it up. Don't watch the movie. Bad movie. Goodness. God, everything's been ruined by the internet. Everything's been ruined by the internet. Shamelessness is Jesus' religion. 
The shameless of knowing that your father will never turn his back on you because you're his son. And every time you don't think that can possibly be true for you, you should look at the crucifix. That's what it's good for. Is you remember that that's also God's son and that's where you should be and you're not. You're standing where you are looking at it because he's there instead. And that's God's testimony to you. His son. Adoption as an heir. Why are you afraid? What do you got to be ashamed of? Even your shame now is the glory of the cross. I don't try to pile on it. That don't help. But you know what I mean. Once it's free, it's free. Why would you carry it? Do you not trust him? Is he not your father? That's the point, yeah? That's the point. I mentioned death. Let's see if I can get back to it. Ah, I don't know. I know this. Sons of great fathers don't fear. Think about it. I don't need to prove that to you. Should be instinctual to know that. Whenever a son knows his father's behind him, he's confident and fearless. If all the men of our age are fearful, what does that tell us? We all need to repent is what needs to tell us. And, and it, especially of how we're treating our sons. Stop looking up, look down instead. See where your responsibility lies. If the men before you drop the ball, what is that to you? Sir, stand up. And, and that's kind of where we got to be right now. To remember that even in an age of men without duty, men of duty must rise up all the more and prove that it's real. That you don't actually need your mom to clean up for you. That you can stand up and figure out how to fix the problem. You got mud on your shoes or a leak in the hole of the corner of your roof, which I actually do. <laughs> New house. Yeehaw! Uh, what do you do about it? Cry? Uh, pray is a good idea. And then what? Whatever your hand finds to do. I commend to you Ecclesiastes 7 through 12 over and over again. If you slow down at all this Advent season, you want to do some like devoting around the table that isn't just listening to someone expound, right? But try digging with your own hands. Ecclesiastes 7 through 12 will, will throw you through for a loop. You'll be like, I'm not sure. And is this Christmas? And I'm going to tell you, yes. You want to know the illumination that comes with the incarnation of the Holy God, not only into long ago, but right now your mouth, both in and out, to make you breathing the spirit of the living God. I'm telling you, for Advent, get into Ecclesiastes 7 through 12. It's perfect. It's gorgeous. It'll wake you up. It'll wake you up. Mm. Here's a little bit from uh, 8.3b. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Why don't we always go to Genesis 6 to prove original sin? It's right there in Ecclesiastes 8, and it's much clearer. Much clearer than Genesis 6. Anyway, apologetics of the last hundred years. We tried hard, and we were fighting a battle that was being led by the nose, frankly. Anyway, there's lots of good resources there as a result, but they may not, they didn't do what we wanted them to do. In any case, uh, truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. I love what it says next, though. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after life. They die. Holy Bible. We need more of that in our life. I'm telling you. We really do. That, that can't hurt us. Honestly. It can, it can wake us up. And then we go and we're like, okay, that's scary. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out. That's Moses. Fear not. I'm your king. I'm your brother. I'm your brother. What's your... B we live in a land without brothers, don't we? How would you know what a brother is? Ah. Well, what a brother is, is the one who sticks tighter than anybody else, what a brother is. Uh, and that's who Jesus is now. 
to all of us, which makes us Christians, Catholic Christians in the West, <laughs> Christians who love our scriptures, Christians who love to pray the Psalms, Christians who are okay looking at a crucifix, we're brothers. We've been fighting over scraps for quite a while from elite men far away who are getting the tithes and offerings and doing what they want on world-level gaming. Come on, it's more than 500 years Vatican's been doing that. Don't tell me it's not happening. We need to be brothers on the ground, whether we commune together or not. And I don't think we should all be communing together. But if you confess the Trinity, and you can pray those Psalms with me every single day, then do it. Because <laughs> we're in trouble. Have you noticed? All of us. And, and like starting a new denomination or a new movement isn't going to help. Another religion. That'll be, there we go. Where can we agree? The ancient creeds are there for that purpose. So we should probably cling to those. I would suggest the Augsburg Confession, given before the Pope, many, many, many moons ago, I guess before the Emperor, many, 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 many moons ago, it's a nice platform. It was right before everything completely broke into chaos. It was when that was rejected that everything completely broke into chaos. So if we could like bring that thing back together and use it as our platform for building, my guess is we get way further than the last 500 years ago, so far as not having the world lead us by the nose in a game of uh, pin the tail on the chaos and the, def the defunctoriness of trying to start again and fail. As if we can do it. We're going to be the real... We're just Christians now. We're the real ones. Are you kidding me? You know how rude that is? All the rest of us sitting here trying our whole lives. You're, you're the real ones? Golly. All of us. All of us. LCMS, we're the most arrogant of all. We really are. I mean, yours truly. Hello. Welcome to it. But, but if you can't say that... See, my shame is covered by Jesus now. So I, I'll call my arrogance what it is. I'm not going to let it win. I'm going to fight back today against that. Right? Rather than kind of poo-poo and pretend I'm better than I am so I can go and live the, you know, the Facebook dream. Ugh, what a disaster. In any case, how's that for fun? We got 10 more minutes till Dr. Bombaro shows up. I think what I'm going to do is give us our taste of uh, Talk Them Into It, my most recent book, uh, The Truth, Devotional Truth, about how to make Christians talking to your friends and neighbors about Jesus. Let's see here. I think I can get there pretty, pretty well if we don't do that. Was that right? Hold on, hold on. No, what all I want to do, <laughs> this is a professional show. I swears it, almost, almost. There we go. So, uh, on page 29, we read this. We must learn to converse in meaningful and congenial depths. What do I mean by that? All diplomacy, all conversation, all the things you would do with another person that involve the exchange of information, they require three things. A true exchange of information. That's very, very important. Uh, that real substantial understanding passes potential for ulterior motives that is for bad information so it's real but it's false right it has ideas but they're they're not good ideas they're bad ideas and they have consequences that are just as bad or worse right and <laughs> welcome to history um and then three uh consistent enough return to engage again so if you want to be in a conversation with someone where they come back to you not only do you have to really talk exchange ideas not only do you have to deal with the fact they might be lying to you you have to not lie <laughs> you have to tell the truth enough that they come back. And even if their lies are exposed, you have to keep giving them a reason to come back. That's what a friend kind of wants to be. Now, there are times and places where when you're dealing with someone whose conscience is seared and you don't want to have that conversation anymore, they're just going to use you. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about when you're talking to somebody who you really know, who they're really interested. They're not, they're not abusing you. You know all your boundaries are in good places, right? And so now you have to like reckon with what does it mean to have a conversation with them about Jesus since they don't believe. And that means they're going to burn the fire to hell and get used to that as being something you're going to say hallelujah to on the last day. So look at them now and think twice, huh? 
Yeah, okay. So um, you won't be friends long with someone who never follows through. This is true, right? Who lies 7% of the time. It's not going to last. Uh, <laughs> and, and who brings no real substance to anything ever. Mm, they're, they're, they're vain and boring. Yeah. Well, who are you, right? Uh, your goal in the diplomacy of our Lord is to give away the best and truest information there is. So your goal then is, is to be the opposite of all those things. Who's always willing to give good information, whatever that information might be. But in order to do this well, you will need to discipline the discipline to handle two things. Here they are. Number one, knowing the most basic knowledge yourself. Like, if you don't know your religion, that's a problem. So you, you kind of got to know Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Like, you should be able to say that when it's like, why are you a Christian? Um, I love people at church. Yeah, come on, man. Dude, like, that's good and all, but like, no, it's not. It's not why. It's not why at all. And if you say that, if you can't answer that, I'm not sure you are one. Now, you're baptized, right? Okay, so Jesus says you're one. You should believe that. Do you? That's what you need to ask yourself. All right. So, so you got to know the basic knowledge yourself. I'm not talking. This is, this is a very big LCMS problem. There's a bunch of really pious people in the LCMS who are like, oh, pastor, I try so hard. I'm going to try harder now. I'm really going to learn more. No, no, I'm not talking to you. It's not about how much you know. So if, if, there's, a, if there's a counter problem, Lutheran style, is we think that if I can read all the books, then I'll really be able to answer the questions when they're ready to convert. Rather than finding out what their questions are, <laughs> right? To take the time to find out what their questions are. But you do have to, and this is what I'm trying to get at, you have to, you have to care enough about your religion to know something of it. You're never going to plumb its depths. I, we, we pastors who spend our life, we can't plumb its depths. The more I study the Bible, the more I realize I don't have enough time to study the Bible. If I did it all week, I'd still not have enough time. So you can't see it as being how much you know. The thing is, are you hungry to know? You got to know something if you want someone else to convert to your religion, right? And then two, the training to enter the conversation armed well enough to listen, which is not about what your religion says, but about what kind of a person you are because of your religion. Uh, Then you will ask enough of the right questions in order to open the opportunities to speak the truth. You'll see where their mythology doesn't really make that much sense. And without being rude, you can just say, can you explain it to me? And eventually they're going to open it up and be like, you know, I don't know. Why would that be? And you'd be like, well, because Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe not straight to the chase, but maybe, maybe. It depends. So some fools will whine, I go on, uh, that this might be manipulate, manipulative, right? So you're entering the conversation with a false motive. You're not going to tell them you're trying to convert them into Christianity. Um, yeah, and, and these are the same people who watch TV, <laughs> Like all the time, right? So we're going to leave them under their bridge. And remember uh, that these simple steps are, these are the simple steps one must take in learning how to not be a jerk to his friends. So it's not manipulative to learn how to be a nice person on purpose if you realize you aren't one. There's nothing manipulative about that. You're just trying to be cool, like as opposed to not. (laughs) Why is that wrong? Go back to your bridge. Those who complain about teaching such things can only be either one entirely ignorant of the possibility. They don't think it's possible to not be a jerk, so they don't want you to try. Because that would make them feel bad when you're nice and they're not. They want to be a cynic. And you're bothering them by not being one. And preferring, number two, the information to lay buried. That is, they like the fact that in this culture, say your congregation, being a jerk is allowed because that allows them to run the congregation without having to have any responsibility for its ramifications, right? So, and if, <laughs> did you hear a little bitterness in my voice? Uh, it's just a reality. You're going to find that all over the place where, where it, people who um, don't want you to talk about being better people uh, usually like not being better people in some way. And they're trying to, to deal with that. Now, you do have people whose consciences are just terrified. They'd never believe the gospel. They don't know that they're saved, that you are saved, that you, you, you're not, you can fall away, but you're not going to fall away. Stop assuming that's what happens. The brother who is Jesus Christ, who's in your place, 
has died for you already getting to this point. And now you're like, oh my goodness, how am I going to finish it? No, you don't have to. Paul's so clear about this in Galatians. You who began with the Spirit, are you going to end by works? No, you're not. No, you're not at all. So I'm going to take a little break here. Uh, uh, we got just a few moments I should be hearing from Dr. Bombaro, and I'll make sure I'm ready for him when he comes. So it's early for break, but we'll be right back. Dr. John Bombaro will be talking woke revivalism, and I'm not even sure what that means, but believe me, you want to stick around. All right, we got Dr. Bombaro coming in right now, although I can't see what I'm doing. So let's let's go back to this. Oh, here we go. Uh, do, 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 do. I can kind of see him, but I'm on the wrong setup here. We're on desktop. Why won't this fix? Oh, goodness. Dr. Bombaro, can you hear me? I can just fine. How about you? Yeah, I can hear you fine, but my, my in theory, really awesome way of showing you on my eCam somehow is trapped in the wrong way of looking at it. I want, I want to make you more viewable here. Oh, goodness gracious. What is up with this? Because if I take these buttons don't work. What if I do this? We are completely trapped in my, all my hotkeys don't work. And you can be seen, but barely. Now, there we go. This will do it. It's 730 in the morning here on the Pacific Coast. So I'm not sure how viewable you want me to be on a Saturday. Well, that, that's all right. I, I love how you get up early to do this stuff with me, which is great. Oh, look. Okay, so now what's happening, it was all delayed. So when you watch this online, you're going to see whoever's watching. It's just going back and forth. It's, it's playing out all the buttons I pushed. Maybe it'll finish. I think I think we're, we're done here, and now we're going to get... Oh, almost. Dr. Bombaro, welcome to the show. We can... Oh, I don't even know what just happened. Now you're over my face. Oh, my goodness. This is embarrassing. Well, why don't you start talking? Because you're what people can see right now, and I'll work on getting us so we can see you. you where, tell us where you are. You were recently... Like, the last we really got to talk, you were in D.C., but I think you're now in Idaho now. Um, you're serving as a pastor. You're planting a church, but you also want to talk about woke revivalism and all that that means for our culture. And I'm not even sure. I mean, I know what woke means. I know what revivalism is, but what you want to do with that, I'm, I'm curious to hear. Okay, so uh, I'm still an LCMS missionary with the Office of International Missions. My principal work is with the Riga Luther Academy in Latvia, and I'm out on the West Coast building curriculum because we're working very closely with Concordia University in Irvine to appropriate their existing Bachelor's of Theology curriculum for a new online curriculum that we'll be using through the Luther Academy and uh in our application for European Union accreditation, the teaching of which has to be in English. So that wasn't, we weren't able to accomplish that task while being in, in Latvia. Uh, so we've come back to the US and uh, working in conjunction with both of our seminaries, Concordia Seminary and Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. And as I said, especially Concordia University in Irvine, building cr the curriculum, resourcing it, and sending it um, back to Latvia, to the Luther Academy there, uh, where we are launching in earnest. We've just done our, our beta classes online, which were fantastically successful uh, this last term. And now the four credit um, courses begin for the Bachelors of Theology. The Luther Academy is well established. It's uh, um, been training seminarians and church workers for Latvia for the last 30 years, actually longer than that, uh, almost 40 years since the time they received their independence in 1991. Uh, well, 30 years, I should say, uh, although the school has a, a little more history than that. 
And uh, so while it was on assignment here, um, we decided to plant a church. We were given to the Lutheran liturgy and, of course, a sacramental worldview. And um, that basically, that's how that happened. Uh, a couple of families asked me to catechize their children for First Holy Communion. Uh, those families stuck around, a few more attracted, and then the next, you know, Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church has been established up here in Hayden, Idaho. Now, the reason I'm in Idaho is my wife is Canadian, and we wanted to be as close to the border as we could, but we also strategically picked Idaho because it tends to be um, more conservative in its political outlook, and it isn't a state that is um, imposing or enforcing restrictions such the other states are. And that, that allows me free movement to be able to accomplish this aspect of the mission. And, of course, I'm still in, um, in the Navy Reserves as a chaplain serving the U.S. Marine Corps out of the Marine Corps Installation Command. Okay, all of that. Uh, so I think we would talk a little bit about, uh, do you want to break in at this point, uh, Jonathan? I, no, or I I, I'm a little curious just a bit more about Latvia, only because mm -hmm. I know that they're the the church the Lutheran church there particularly uh, which matters because it's our our confession mm -hmm. it's strangely strong compared oh, to yes. say other post Soviet bloc states and so just could you maybe touch on the history of that and how that happened uh, I don't even know much about it what I do know is that they translated my book broken into Latvian which is I was like really <laughs> what um, so they're over there working uh, in ways that a lot of other smaller kind of post Soviet bloc churches have not gotten, got the capacity to do yet. Yeah, It's an interesting phenomenon of what's happened in Latvia. So, of course, uh, let's go back to prior to World War II. Following World War I, the, um, the Russians were busy with this thing called the Bolshevik Revolution. And so their occupation and interest in Latvia and the Baltic states had waned as they turned uh, their attention domestically. And the Germans were busy too because they were licking wounds after the loss in World War I. So the Latvians kind of looked around and said, uh, no one's watching, we're independent. <laughs> and so their independence was established. Um, and the Lutheran churches had a long history there. So dating all the way back to 1521. <laughs> so we're talking about the year that Luther uh, received the bull of excommunication. In 1521, Johannes Bugenhagen, who was Luther's pastor at St. Mary's Church, began sending Luther's writings back to the region of Pomerania, which included Latvia hmm. and the Baltic states all the way up to Estonia. By 1523, Luther's writings were so influential that the entire region uh, threw off the yoke of Roman Catholicism and had become Lutheran. Hmm. It's astonishing. Yeah, 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 it really is. So you can go to the Reformation Church, St. Peter's, right there in um, in Latvia, and uh, it's fantastic. It's the very pulpits that the first Livonians were preaching, the gospel of um, justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. And really remarkable history. But we shouldn't pretend well, that this is like the entire country either, right? There's a, a, In today's scenario. Right, right. And, and there are reasons for that. Um, so... Lutheranism continues to spread uh, throughout that time. You do have, um, from the 1600s, 1700s, Russians sweeping in, Germans pushing back, Russians sweeping into the region. And so with that, you'll have Catholicism coming in, Eastern Orthodoxy, or I should say Russian Orthodoxy hmm. coming in. 
But the Lutherans held their own, and they held their own largely because of singing. Hmm. They sang the faith. There was yeah. excellent catechesis in the home, in and through song. Uh, Christopher Brown wrote a wonderful book called Singing the Gospel, which was his um, Harvard doctoral dissertation. It's totally worth reading. And it's about the phenomenon of how deeply the faith can be ensconced in a, a community. The community he was looking at was um, Joachimstahl, I believe it was, in Germany, Czech border, um, how the, the entire community had been thoroughly Lutheranized. And uh, over the next hundred years, the Roman Catholic Church did everything in its powers to reverse that, um, sending priests in um, to govern the region and in turn, they would wind up being converted and becoming Lutheran pastors, and then they would be expelled from the region. But it's the power of singing the faith that was important. All right, let me advance the conversation all the way up to um, the the notions of the freedom that came with being a Christian were intimately related to Lutheranism. And hence, Lutheranism has had been the, the favored religion in Latvia all the way through its period of independence. World War II comes around. Uh, the Russians invade and they brutalize the Latvians. In turn, the Nazis push, push through on their way to the, um, not only the Russian front, but to push all the way to the point of Moscow. And the Nazis, interestingly, were seen as liberators from the oppression of the Russians. The history on both sides there is, is, if I recall, so the Nazis were pretty bad when we found out what they're doing in secret, but the Russians mm -hmm. were like doing it to their prisoners of war, right? It, oh, it was, it was okay. a little bit of a, the Nazis were nice with their prisoners of war. They played by kind of the old rules, at least for a time. Secret stuff is a different thing. And so, yeah, so the townspeople are like, we're not getting, you know, raped. This is awesome. Right. They're happy. Yeah. <laughs> horrible, horrible time. Uh, I, I recommend anybody. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, uh, World War One and World War Two series from the Japanese angle. He's got two of them. It's like 40 hours of history. And you will you'll be glad you live where you do. I'll say that. Yes. Way. Uh, there was a wonderful book, too, called The Lamb of Latvia that narrates uh, the atrocities of World War Two through one particular Latvian family, oh. the Lamb of Latvia. So what happened was this. Uh, of course, the Germans fail on the Russian front, and uh, they retreat in defeat out of there, and then the Soviets reoccupy in 1944. And that, that reoccupation of Latvia does not end until after the Reagan era. Um, the time under communism was massively oppressive. Uh, it enforced agnosticism, if not atheism, through... Marxist materialism, and Lutheranism dropped off. Now, what was unique, and this relates to your original question, what was unique about Latvia was they turned domestic, internal to their own homes for the preservation of their faith. So by the end of World War II, 80% of all of the clergy in Latvia were dead, missing, or fled. Wow. How's that? So no pastors. So if, if there was going to be a faith, the first church was going to be the home, yeah. which is really interesting because that's the way that Luther had planned it, that the head of the household would teach these things to his church, right? And it says that with each uh, of the six chief parts within Luther's small catechism, to teach them in a simple way to their family, uh, the elements of our holy faith. Well, that's what happened. Come the fall of communism in the Baltic states, this was in November 1990, the first surveys in Latvia were astonishing. 
with respect to how many people held on to their Lutheran faith. In Estonia, it was in the low single digit, hmm. 4 5%. In Latvia, it was over 20% hmm. of people still professed to be Lutheran, even though they hadn't had a Lutheran pastor, um, much less could worship in public in any kind of way. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was attributed to excellent catechesis in the home being passed on from generation to generation. The Latvians are a resilient people, and in that region, they are perhaps our most um, treasured partner in our confessional faith. Um, so three cheers to the Latvians. There is something of a, a Latvian revival going on, and it's actually the antithesis to this wokeism that we'll talk about today. Um, the antithesis is, is this. There has been a rise in nationalism as there's been the eviscerating of national identities within the European Union. I'll state that differently. I'm going to say that's a global reality, too, though. I mean, it's happening in India, it's happening in South America, it's happening here. So, absolutely. Well, and that's the phenomenon I want to talk about today. And it really doesn't operate under wokeism, but wokeism is symptomatic of what the real ill is. And uh, I'll save that surprise for just a moment. Sure, yeah. Uh, so what you had in in Latvia was a reaction to um, to the globalization, as you were saying, things moving more toward the general and away from the specific. So specific identity, for instance, Lutheran, Latvia, Caucasian, as it is right. in that region of the world. Um, there was a recovery of their national identity, which they found bound up intimately with Christianity. And over the last 500 years, Lutheran Christianity. Uh, and so the church is actually growing. The last statistic I saw was um, nearly 36% of the country is now um, professing to be Lutheran. The, ch incredible. the church is growing. <laughs> exactly. We've just had our largest incoming class at the Riga Luther Academy since 2007. Now, let me, um, let me let me just kind of jump to America, though, because Lutherans in America sure. are a completely different breed. And so those kind of numbers here wouldn't even really do much, honestly, if we converted at that rate. But could you imagine that, you know, what's what's American attendance right now post-COVID in churches? And let just let that be a number that you were used to it being that way for a long time. And then suddenly that jumps by one and a half, 150 percent, right? In, in what, a decade, two decades of Christianity. You just see that much more Christianity in your culture. That'd be nuts. Um, and so that's kind of what you're saying. In a smaller place, America's a big country. You could do this in your local town. Hey, anyway, keep going, John. Well, it, to go to Edmund Burke, Edmund Burke said that real changes are affected not by the national leader, although someone like Donald Trump, you can see not only acts as a, a lightning rod, um, but a lightning bolt um, to affect change in terms of policy and such. Edmund Burke said, who was a, a British a political philosopher, Things happen in little platoons, in small communities. It begins with your uh, your PTO group in your school. It begins with your church, uh, those who are like-minded in, in terms of whatever sort of organization of social benefaction. Those little platoons globbing together create, uh, by way of an aggregate effect, um, more influential at deeper levels in a more systemic way uh, and a more enduring way than simply uh, the winds of political change from, you know, a, a sweeping through of a new administration in the White House and a cabinet and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here in the U.S., 
where I have my concerns about the effects of COVID is habituation, Hmm. the habits that are formed by not attending church. So this makes me think of James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, right? And he talks about the uh, the power of um, habitus, you know, the habit, the disposition you have of d- doing something in a relig- ritualistic fashion or religious fashion, how important that is. And that habits are affected, um, can take places in as few as six weeks, but typically after three months, you have yourself a permanent habit. We now have people who have not been in church, not only in six weeks or three months, but now rolling on 10 months. Yeah. What kind of habits have been established, bad habits uh, for the Christian, bad habits for the Christian church, where uh, we've divorced the word and sacrament from one another as if the high points in the divine service no longer are the reading of the gospel and Holy Communion, and that the sermon is merely the bridge between the two to now the sermon is the end all be all. In other words, we're losing a sacramental culture. And with that, the incarnational real presence of Christ amidst his people, that tangible, tactile reminder that Christ is in charge. Yeah. Not COVID. I'm going to suggest this even generationally, like, like you'll remain Christian, the generation that happens where you disperse like this. But, uh, my, my betting odds hunch is, uh, generationally that's not able to be passed on. You, you just are absorbed into the culture after this because the little bit of internet you're getting of Bible, uh, versus the lot of internet you're getting of everything else. Well, that's what your kids are going to see. That's what they're going to be. And since you don't have approximate religion besides the TV, then they're going to pick one of the many things the TV says to them, of which you're just making this one of those things. Um, I've been yiping about the proximity of the Lord's Supper as the gospel for a while. I wrote a book about it. I believe you even were kind enough to say some nice things about this book at one point without flesh. Um, uh, we're going to have a question later on the show uh, that I'm curious if you'll give an answer to now uh, about a, and I believe this is a Lutheran LCMS church, although I haven't done all the digging on that, that this week is going to a at-home consecration over the internet Lord's Supper. So yeah, just your your thoughts on, is that valid? Why not? What should you do? <laughs> you don't have to answer. I'll do it later. But you know, I know you're going to say what I'm going to say. So that's why I asked you. <laughs> Well, I'm happy that our synod has issued a report and the, from the president's office that would be equivalent to archbishop, our archbishop's office of, in episcopal terms, um, that it is not a valid sacrament. Mm-hmm. The idea of the incarnational presence of Christ is something that plays on um, the idea of uh, the ontological presence of Christ in and through his word, and his word um, being empowered by the Holy Spirit for the particular purpose of when or two or three are gathered together in proximity to his, to him. Uh, it's about the gathering of the family together. What renders Holy Communion um, efficacious, right, effectual, is the divine intent, not our intent. It's where he put his promises, where he's not only communing with us in a vertical dimension, but there's that horizontal dimension that is fortified through the receiving of Christ's body and blood. The whole idea of exchanging the peace in church is critically important, right? This is where 
we leave our gift at the altar, altar and are reconciled with our brother before even coming to the Eucharist. All of that is exploded. In mm. other words, the, the, the very onus for the liturgy, which is the forgiveness of sins to forgive others as you yourself are forgiven, that's not even being made manifest when we gather for the Eucharist. The other thing is, it's not our plaything to do what we want with it. You just simply don't change 20 centuries of how the church has communed with the risen Lord uh, to accommodate. And let me say one other thing. There should be something inherently risky about it. There always has been. You know, Jonathan, if if, uh, our families were together right now and uh, we're sitting around the table and I reached over and picked up your wife's drinking glass and I drank out of it at the table, everyone's eyes would they would raise their eyebrows, wouldn't they? Yeah, People yeah. Are like, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. no, I mean, no, no. It is kind of gross. I mean, you know. <laughs> it's kind of gross and it's inappropriate. Like, yes, correct. you don't do that. Yet in Holy Communion, those sort of, um, that sort of individualism is exploded by the communal and familial paradigm. That's good. Your wife will hand me the chalice and I will put my lips on the same cup and then pass it to the next person. And what it does is it explodes notions of demographic division. Mm. There's neither male nor female, black nor white, fat nor thin, Democrat, Republican, smoker, non-smoker. When that chalice is handed to you, you're receiving it as a guest, an equal and welcome guest of the Lord, as a child who's been adopted by our Heavenly Father through holy baptism. None of those things can be made manifest when we play virtuosity with the Eucharist. And I think that's the other notion, is that there's this subtlety to Holy Communion that um, just like using a PowerPoint projector, all that you get is kind of a hologram Jesus, two-dimensional. Likewise, when we're playing virtual Holy Communion, right, the communion of the saints is double entendre. The saints communing with one another, but the communion of the saints with our Lord, none of that is present there. And again, I think it's only um, reinforcing a new habituation internal to the church where we can be self-feeders. That is not the way that it works. We receive the Eucharist from the hand who stands in persona Christi so that we may know, not by way of self-appropriation, but by way of reception, which is, that is the heart of faith that indeed we are forgiven. Yeah. There, so that's my thought on that. It's great. You're subjected to the king. And, and I want you to uh, talk about that here for a moment. Um, because I think the struggle people have with the idea of the office of the ministry, and I think as, as Lutherans, we do have a awkward way of talking about it. We don't have a real clear way of talking about it. Um, and, but the struggle with that, I think, is clarified quite a bit when we remember that a king is a real thing and that God makes them and that the idea of a president or a republic or a democracy is more of a man-made thing uh, than what, what God ever has done or is doing in Jesus. And so to go to receive from the emissary of the king seems like a real thing. Now, again, where's the Bible verse? I prove that that's always been the challenge is so what's the whole Bible? <laughs> you know, so we're in a, we're in a tough place, but could you speak to that issue? Um, having a Lord makes a big difference. It is the whole Bible, and I I think we can substantiate this, and it has been substantiated, that the principal metaphor of Scripture is kingdom, from its first verse to its last. Every episode, every story 
every doctrine is narrated in and through the concept of kingdom. So take the first verses of the Holy Bible in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God, there is the one who by eternal right exists upon a throne, is going to establish his earthly kingdom. And he does so by merely speaking the divine fiat. He issues forth the royal decree, let there be, to which the only response, and it was so. And he does it by the power of his word. His word has perlocutionary force. His logos is that which creates. It establishes the state of affairs, which is, and then we must conform ourselves to that reality as his subjects. That metaphor runs through all of scripture until it finds its apogee, that's the like focal point, right at the pinnacle on us looking for the coming king, who's in the line of King David and his dynasty, right? Yeah. And then even Jesus, you know, we're just singing last night, you know, born is the king of Israel, right? Joy to the world. The Lord, the king, the sovereign has come in his crucifixion. Why is Jesus put to death? Well, we would say, well, you know, the Pharisees said it was blasphemy, but they didn't have the authority to put him to death. The Romans did, and they did so for monarchy. That's exactly right. (laughs) For high treason. They said, we already have a king and his name is Caesar and he's in Rome. And here is one saying that he's the king of the Jews, which is the usurped Caesar to have a claim greater than Caesar. And knowing that Jesus was reconstituting Israel to include the Gentiles around himself in the fulfillment of all scripture, because Israel as an actual entity had disappeared from the year 722 BC when the Northern 10 tribes were obliterated. So anytime we're reading about prophecies subsequent to that time concerning Israel, it has to be a reconstituted Israel, which is why we have the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus, you know, is the king of Israel, which includes both Jew and Gentile. It even says it you're, on the You're tickles. causing troubles with my rapture theology here. I don't know how to deal with this, Dr. Bumbar. I was going too far. Uh, no, I, what I want to get back to is you, you talked about conforming to our reality as subjects. That mm-hmm. just ain't American, man. So you got to tell me what the, I'm supposed to, as a Christian, conform to my reality as a subject. I don't even so have a framework for, for understanding that. Well, it's the ultimate allegiance question. Ah, you know, yeah. it, it's this is what we get with render unto Caesar, unto Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God's. Well, it all belongs to God, right? Mm. Uh, we belong to him. Um, the last time, we as Americans, we have a difficult time with this because the last time we had a king, we dumped his tea into the harbor, and then we hid in the woods, shot his troops, and won. Hmm. So that's what we that's do with summary. kings. Yeah. We yeah. throw them out. <laughs> Um, so for us to take on the idea that there is a monarch to whom we bow the knee, who when he issues forth the royal decree, that is it. That's the state of affairs. In the United States, we don't have a sovereign that way. Rather, it's collapsed to the individual. I am the sovereign voter or the sovereign consumer. I can change the laws of the state, of the government, right, of the sovereign that's not how it works with Yahweh. That's not how it works with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He issued forth a decree, and it creates the state of affairs to which we must conform because it is the reality. His issuing forth the state of affairs sets the parameters for human living, and it even confers identity. 
So when he says, I baptize you into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, well, that's my identity. And now I need to begin to conform myself, or St. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of my mind to the state of affairs such as they really are. It's a good mm-hmm. place for a sacramentarian who doesn't understand the Lutheran view of baptism to begin by seeing, forget forget the regenerational aspect of it as some sort of magic moment, and see it again as, look, in real time and space, the body of Christ, the church, has named you a Christian now, and with that naming and christening, that anointing you've received, come certain promises that you are free to believe now. Frankly, when you believe those promises, you have regenerated. So it's kind of like, well, there's baptismal regeneration. It's not that complicated. It's just believing the words as sealed in the sign. Um, again, I'm just trying to give that as a path for people to start on. I think, of course, there's a transcosmic reality that we can't see at work there because of all the, the greatness of the Word of God, the, the greatness of His name. But that identification is Son. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I, I want to add, I think it's important to translate the Greek word ice, which we normally get um, baptized in the name of the Father. It's not in like on behalf of, yeah. or I, it's actually a plunging into the divine life such that is eternal. Absolutely. And the eternal life is a quality of life that also happens to be quantitative. In other words, it's not merely just the forever and ever and ever kind of life. It is receiving the life of Christ, the spirit of Christ within us. That's what it means to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's um just like our being birthed into this world, you must break forth the waters of your mother The water breaks and you're birthed from one domain, right, darkness in her womb into the light of the world. So, too, we're breaking through the waters of our Holy Mother Church and being translated from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And that's what happens when God issues forth his word. He speaks his word and it accomplishes what it says. This goes back to um, a deeply Jewish philosophy of language. When I say philosophy, I'm not trying to downgrade it from theology. I'm just saying this is a way that we can logically understand how God's word has power. So the father is the locutor. He is the speaker. And what he speaks is the elocution, the word. And the elocution has perlocutionary force. It has power to change things. That is the Holy Spirit. And, and, and a simple example that words are really that substantive, words are really that powerful. Just think of what it takes for you to be rendered under arrest. All that a police officer has to say is, you're under arrest. And that's it. Your state of affairs have changed. Your identity has been altered. And now you must conform to that reality or perhaps alternatively be shot, right? All it takes is two liars, right? Two liars yeah, and you're arrested no matter who you are. And, exactly. You know, I, guess, I guess if you have a laptop and a lot of money in Delaware, there's different laws. <laughs> but mostly, mostly it, it, it's the same. But the bad name, how easy it is for words to destroy a bad name is, is really something. There's another side of it in which we want our words to be more than they are. We can intuit that God's word does what it does, and we wish our words would, and they don't. And that's often what gets us angry. We, we can kind of, uh, first commandment built into nature, see what we're not. First, second, and third commandment built into nature, see what we're not, and try to be it. 
Um, and so uh, also what's interesting then is the more we try to do that, the more we try to make our words be God's words and control our environment, the more babble we create and the more white noise we make and the less actual unity and truth we have. We're just, we're, we're united in the chaos, which is again, 2020. Hello. Um, it's 10 o'clock. You agreed to be here for half an hour. I'm happy to have you on longer. I, I still want you to talk about the woke idea a little bit. Um, so okay. if you at least would do that for me, uh, let's get into what, what do you, what do you see as the, you, you called it a, uh, like a fruit of the bigger issue, right? So tie that together. What is the wokeness? How does it become a fruit of the bigger issue? Well, like politically correct before it, the word um, woke is, has come to mean, I think, the opposite of what it originally had meant. Um, technically, by going to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, we would get woke meaning something like aware of and um, actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially re- related to issues of race and social justice. Um, we could call such woke people the woke all right? Uh, this term has been weaponized for the purposes of exploiting identity politics. Identity politics is a term that describes the political approach wherein people of a particular religion, race, social background, class, or other identifying um, uh, demographic divider. Ethnicities, um, right? Ethnicities, yeah, cultures, exactly. all these things. Heritages, Maybe tribes. These things develop political agendas and organize based on interlocking systems of oppression that, that affect their lives and have come from their various identities. So wokeism is an extension of identity politics. And what it's about is the um, utilizing race to eviscerate race, which doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but that's the way that it works. Uh, We could go into the history of it, but what I'm really concerned about with wokeism and identity politics, multiculturalism, political correctness, that what they all are, are symptoms of a greater ideology, a governing ideology uh, called humanitarianism. Humanitarianism is such an important concept. It is not conspiratorial, like there is a group of humanitarianists uh, sitting in, you know, the Bilderberger Society saying, we're going to impose this. It's more of an aggregate phenomenon that has now become the governing ethic for northern hemisphere um, social and political political interactions. So let me explain a little bit. We're conversant with humanism. Say the proxy of the area again, though. The, you said it was for a certain region. Say it again. Northern hemisphere. Okay. Good. Yeah. So uh, particularly ensconced in western European, North American. Yeah, it is but Britannia. It is Britannia. Wherever she has shined, it goes down now, I think. But that's just my thoughts. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that we're dealing with the right term. Yeah, so yeah. people have heard of the term humanism and mm. the outlook or system of thought that attaches prime importance to the human rather than to divine or spiritual matters or supernatural matters. So it doesn't deny that those things are there. If it does so, that's that's fine. Um, it's just saying that the human matters take precedence. So, and 
there are humanist beliefs that stress the the potential value and goodness of human beings and they emphasize the common human needs and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. And then we're also familiar, so that's the humanism and humanists. Which and is like we're also what, John likely, Locke is a humanist, right? Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're also likely to be familiar with the term humanitarian, right? So humanitarian endeavors that are concerned with uh, seeking to promote human welfare. These two ideas, along with wokeism and political ideas, uh, uh, identity politics and multiculturalism, they all contribute to a larger governing ideological framework, humanitarianism. And if we could just get some ideas that latch onto this in our conversation here, it really will help make sense of why we have the political divisions that we do, why there's a battle over the border uh, of our nation um, and other nations as well, why there is a drive toward globalism, how it is that the United Nations have gone from just 20 years ago having 30 fundamental human rights to now more than 1,200 fundamental human rights. More, the more they have, the more they can take away, it seems. <laughs> so these ideas, like I said, uh, relate to and contribute to a larger framework of humanitarianism. Hmm. Humanitarianism has slipped under the church's radar because the church itself is deeply invested in humane endeavors and right. humanitarian care and aid of which humanitarianism is involved. So for the better part of a century, humanitarianism has grown in influence and normalcy right under the church's nose and still remains, I would say, largely unknown and undiscussed. Now, am I wrong but, in saying that everything you've described is like literally a godless religion? Like, like yes, it is defined as a godless religion. Of humanity. <laughs> It's humanity serving humanity for humanity's sake and humanity's sake alone. Okay, so it's humanity is godless religion. That sounds like you take that a little ways back, and that's a really bad description. Like this is terrible. This is oh, this is cataclysmic. We have a godless religion running the planet. Oh no! Uh, wait, in many places under the auspices of Christianity itself, right? Or the auspices of Judaism Which we itself. We call Antichrist usually, not just Judaism, right? But when the when the great lie takes its seat in the name of Jesus, it doesn't have to be in the Vatican's chair. <laughs> it can be anywhere. Now, why this should concern everyone and not merely Christians is that there's no greater challenge to Christianity and Western culture, specifically, we would say, to the gospel of justification yeah, yeah. and consequent sanctification than ideological humanitarianism. It's a greater threat than atheism, which can be straightforwardly contradicted or countermanded with evidence and facts. And it's a greater threat than Islam because it has been the very ideals of humanitarianism that has opened the doors of immigration to Muslims in Western Europe and also in North America. So we, we can't have things like intentional discipleship because it suffers from these converging forces. On the one hand, the insistence that human beings lived in closed cultures, um, utterly sufficient to themselves. And then on the other hand, um, are elites blindly announcing the unification of a humanity, which is escaping national loyalties and national identification. Hmm. The opposite is happening in places like Latvia and Hungary and Poland. I'd say almost right? everywhere 
where they don't have police on the streets stopping it from happening, it's happening. No one's going along with this willfully except for people who live exclusively on the internet in elite-ish lifestyles. They don't know because I don't know Mm -hmm. why. They don't go out. In other words, while religion and patriotism, both fundamental cultural and personal identity makers, are being driven out of public discourse and rendered distasteful and unenlightened, generic humanism and the ethical ideas associated with it are being lauded as the only acceptable categories of anthropology for public policy, education, civic expression, and even consumption. Think about how woke Nike is, for example, right? What are they given to? They're given to a very globalist understanding of humanity and the ethic that drives it is humanitarianism. Which again, so, so let's say, so it's the idea that humans by human power without God's help can in fact make all human life good. And this yes. religious idea um, not only is running everything, right, but, but is missing something. And, and I'm going to now, let me throw a curveball at this because I've been kind of coming to the conclusion that the singular event that's happening right now is the recapture of the male that the the male as redeemed by christ particularly as king has been since uh we got the bad king thrown off at least western culture you can go back and make a card on this a little bit since we realized there were bad kings we've been moving toward the removal of the head in every aspect and now we're down to the father in the house and what you have is all over the world everyone's like nope they just not gonna do it the father mm-hmm. is going to be different than the mother and in homes where the father will do what the mother says, they're probably listening to the TV a lot more in terms of his regulations. And homes where the father thinks for himself, they're all talking about it. <laughs> they're all talking about it. And and that that is what humanitarianism as an ideology denies, that there's a Absolutely. difference between men and women. So, so let me throw that there's in. A, there's a reason uh, that it denies it, and that is it operates by a concept of humanity as such. And that the highest good that a human can be doing is fighting for and asserting as activists human rights. Now, those human rights are serving the ultimate power in the universe, which is not divine. And it certainly isn't national uh, entities. It's the human will. Hmm. And this is why it eviscerates things, again, always moving toward the general humanity, unless we're the specific male and female. So this is where that notion of the father comes in is so important. In places like Italy, Italy has seen a huge um, pushback on this by the rise of what's called the family party. Mm-hmm. Do you have you heard about the family? I have, party? They're connected with Alan Carson's work, and he's he's a member of my congregation, so I hear about Italy and Hungary and all that stuff. It's great. Yeah, and what are they doing? They're safeguarding the family. Why? For the good of society, as this is the highest good for society. So too in Russia. You know, for all the issues I have with Vladimir Putin, he's, which on, he's I, on this one, though. You're right. Yeah, he's actually good on this one. Um, very pro-family. And he sees that the impetus behind the preservation of the family and the virtues of it is orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. You know, his uh, relations with the Orthodox Church are favorable, politically speaking, because he sees that there's there's value to be had there. Like every um, good king, he knows you need to unite the tribes with the religion. And, uh, you know, he's a really good bad king is the way we should see Putin, I think. I'd rather be under a good bad king than a, 
no king and chaos and mobs and they're killing people in the streets and we don't know what's going on and we're not there yet everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and this is you know one of the one of the things we have not caught up to here in the United States or uh, Western European culture, and that is the recovery of the value of the family. Mm-hmm. You know, the the great Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a wonderful book called A Secular Age. And he said, you know, a secular age is with us now. It is settled upon us. And he basically does an analysis of it and says the Christian church, one, needs to get used to it. And then two, discover some ways that we can speak into our secular age. But Mary Eberstadt said he missed a huge component in his analysis, and that was the relationship between family and religion. She wrote a book called, uh, as an appendix, as it were, to his book, which is scholarly and irrefutable, called How the West Really Lost God. Hmm. Or, yeah, that's the name of How the West Really Lost God. Um, and in that book, she says, the two go hand in hand. You you, uh, destroy the family, you lose religion. You lose religion, you destroy the family. The the two are in a symbiotic relationship with one another. We've systemically destroyed both in the U.S. And we have committed our education process outside of the home. It reminds me of what Ron Dreyer wrote in a book um, called um, Nostalgia, Hmm. Going Home in a Homeless World. In there, he has this wonderful paragraph, and he says, if the education that we're acquiring our children does not fortify the values of the family and the church, it's an education of no value. Yeah, it's a de-education. It's a de-education. It's a a program, but we have bought into this. Mm -hmm. Um, Listen to what your kids are being taught at school. It's humanitarian principles. Listen to what's being... um, you know, broadcast on sports, you know, all all of it has moved, not just simply in a consumeristic fashion, but it has bought in lock, stock and barrel to political correctness, multiculturalism, identity politics, Mm. wokeism. In other words, we're kind of swimming in a river of, um, of humanitarianism, but we're not even conscious of it because we've been living like fish. Yeah, we right. don't even know that this is the, uh, well, to switch the metaphor, the air that we breathe. Right. It's so normative. But unless we can step back like Pierre Manette and identify it, Manette is uh, an important French Catholic political thinker, and he describes humanitarian temptation that affects uh, the Western world today by saying this. I'm going to quote him. The great danger of contemporary humanitarianism is of habituating peoples to despise political reflection, even politics itself, and its concrete conditions of existence, as if the affirmation of humanity was sufficient in itself. Now, I'm going to give you the second paragraph. What he's saying there is you strip away the identity of being an American. It's more important to be a global citizen. It's... um, for me to have a an Italian German heritage that's Lutheran is, is is a bad thing. For me to be a human being as such, devoid of whiteness, of uh, Lutheranism, of Americanism, like all of those things, once they're stripped away, it's apparently good enough just to have an affirmation of humanity itself. He's saying no because that's not the way that human beings work. Our identity is found in specificity. 
This is why remembering our baptism every morning is so important. Okay, I'll go on to the second this is, power. This is why white is such a terrible word. I'm just going to mm-hmm. leave it at that. Yeah. It's a terrible word. It's racist. So here we go. Each epoch, I'm again quoting Manette, each epoch knows some temptations. The revolutionary temptation persisted for a long time in the West. Today, we experience the humanitarian temptation, which appears more sympathetic. But in a certain manner, these two temptations are in continuity and belong to the very same project, namely to abolish the political existence of men, which separates human beings into nations and classes. Hmm. Just apply that to Christianity, right? They come together to abolish the political existence of humanity in Christ Jesus. We have a politics. We have a king. We live in a monarchy. And this goes back to that allegiance question. Even as a United States naval officer, if there's a fundamental conflict between my allegiance to my nation and to the one and only true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's not even a question at play here. My allegiance is exclusively to Jesus Christ. Hmm. And it's without condition. Whereas my allegiance to my country is conditional. A lot of people may be uncomfortable with that, but that's the hierarchy by which we live. I'm going to say it's because of that hierarchy that you're a good soldier and that you need something like that. Otherwise you're going to be a bad soldier. (laughs) You have to believe in hierarchy, which means it has to be bigger than just the army. Otherwise it's all a big lie and you'll know because the army is imperfect and you'll see it every day. And so your God won't work. You need a God who's bigger well, than the world you see around you. Um, we're at 1020. Uh, I got to get a couple other questions in before I go off to a sure shooting thing. event today. But I would love to have you back on again in the future because this has been fantastic. Dr. John Bombaro, why don't you give us your, your swath of titles again? Where should people go to support you or learn more from you? How would they do that? Through Mission Central, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Uh, I'm a missionary serving Latvia with my family, my wife, Melinda, and our four children, Sophia, Marie, Anna, and Luca. Um, And then while on our assignment here, which is a great joy, and we'll see how long the the Lord has this, we're enjoying the privilege of seeing uh, our church, Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church in Hayden, Idaho, thrive uh, under the Lord's blessing and with good leadership here as well. So, yep, that's where you can find me, missionary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and um, and enjoying the privileges that the Lord has given us in this unique time. Amen. Let's do this again sometime on the other side of Christmas, January, February, all right? Yeah, sounds great. Right on, John. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and I, and I just said goodbye to him, so he could have... Uh, how do I do it? That's where you need, like, millions of people running buttons behind the scene for you. We're going to take a real quick break and come back. I got a bunch of questions from you I don't want to miss because they're good ones today, including stuff about... Oh, I don't even have a list, so you're just going to have to wait and come back. We'll be right back. Saturday morning chill. Stick around. <laughs> All right, we got limited time here this morning, so I want to get right into this. Uh, what I do got to figure out is this is still a problem. So here we go. Drawing this over here. Got to deal with me looking sideways for a second. Brr, brr, brr. Lester wrote in this week at refis.com slash contact, and he said, For the listener looking for a Christian source for dealing with current events, I find Reverend Seltz's LCRL, Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty website, helpful. I especially like his weekly Liberty Alerts for latest info. Um, Great. That's a good rec. I do not know much about this organization other than where it came from, which is that the LCMS 
recognized or in, in convention and, and as a group working together, whatever that means, recognize the need for uh, political discourse in the present age. And this was their answer was to put uh, Reverend Seltz in an office out there in D.C. I think you could see it maybe as a watchdog, maybe as a lobbyist, maybe as something of both, certainly attempting to advocate for LCMS official policy and issues. And so in that way, yeah, it's absolutely going to be helpful. If you want to know what the LCMS is thinking and doing right now, it's just kind of the arm where I guess a lot of what we talk about here is being talked about. I didn't even know that. That's great. I didn't really know. I remember them funding for this and trying to get it going, but I hadn't heard much about it. So um, that's good to hear. Lesser thanks for the rec on that one. Beth says this. She says, our nation's declaration of independence famously states that uh, all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What are your thoughts on the idea of the pursuit of happiness as a right given to us by God? What sort of impact does that belief have on our own current culture? Thank you for all that you do. Um, that's, that, that's a question deserving a lot of answer, I think, because you have at least two trains of thought that you got to deal with right away. One is just the, the linguistic problem of the word happiness. I'm not even sure I know what that word really is supposed to mean now. Like love, right? It's just too broad. It's too vanilla. Good is the same way. Like these words at a certain point cease to give you really a defined direction and, and at best become like a flavor, right? But it's more like a scent than a flavor. And then the problem with happiness as a flavor is what it seems to promise you is not the common experience of most people on a daily basis kind of ever. Some people are happy people, but m- most people aren't. And so... Just the the word itself isn't a fair word now. Now, if you go back and you look at what was meant when they talked about happiness at this time, and you go back, you find the King James translating the word blessed, makareoi, as happy are those. Well, back then the word happy had a different meaning. It wasn't quite this elusive platonic goo-goo joy that, that we all kind of are chasing consumerism for now. Uh, instead, uh, happiness was more just a recognition of a blessed state, maybe a contentment, an aware contentment, uh, an ability to settle or deal with what's there in a pleasant manner, um, all those things, right? And that is, I think, what then the Declaration, in its essence, was trying to get at, which is that the pursuit of happiness is sort of the idea of having rights or of being an individual, of having the sovereignty to decide what you think for yourself and declare yourself to be either content or discontent with the matter. Uh, and that's what's inalienable in the sense that, you know, whatever, if the declaration guarantees it to you as a citizen, the fact is no one's going to stop you from thinking and feeling. And eventually it's going to be hard for people to stop you from talking. Or if they do, well, you're going to be not happy. Right. So think about North Korea and the type of communism that exists in North Korea, where if you accidentally smile the wrong way about this, that or the other thing, Kim John, and then your children turn you in. Well, I don't think they, they oh, let's just say it's a it's a culture of fear. I'm not going to make pronouncements about what they would do. It's a culture of fear wherein everybody, everybody says we love it here. We love it here. And nobody loves it there. Uh that is the removal of happiness, right? And, and what, what the Declaration of Independence says is we're not going to let any governing authority in the name of God so abuse, tyrannize, and remove the ability of humans to subsist, like kind of be here, right? To just, just tyrannize and destroy. 
uh, to enslave and, and, and weaken. Now, Christianity has a really interesting take on slavery. Really, we, we think it's wrong. In fact, the reason why it doesn't exist as it used to in America, although it does exist in different ways, um, bond servitude is real, people. Uh, lots of different ways, actually. And you're, you're maybe in one of them already. The reason we got rid of the other one that was, you know, at least for a time racially tied, uh, certainly post the event, the racial segregation issue continued on. It was Christianity's belief in all men being saved by Jesus Christ and redeemed in that one man and one king, that all nations and tribes are called as equal brothers into that fraternity. It was that that led the charge to stop dehumanizing humans in the name of humanizing other humans, to play on uh, Bombaro's stuff from before. So what does this mean, though? Why am I saying this? Because what happens now if you find yourself in a world that looks like it's going to enslave you? There's again, there's different ways. Student debt. Hello. You, you're owned by the government until you pay that and it will go to your kids. Look into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, whatever bond servitude you have at a certain rate the rest of your life, 30 years. Is it a mortgage? I don't know. Or is it just a yoke? Well, I mean, I, I got one. But to pretend that I'm free. Uh, there's a certain level at which the, the moment I'm at in debt, I'm now enslaved. Right. Um, so what is a Christian supposed to think about all this? We're supposed to pay who we owe what we owe. When we have debt, we meet it. So what happens when you have someone come and try to force you into slavery? And that's the question, right? For me, like as a Christian, do I, do I have to go with them? Oh, I guess you got me. I'm a Christian, so I have to be your slave now. Or is there this other side of kingdom that we've been talking about and wrestling with? Sons of Solomon is all about praying for this, which isn't about what treason isn't about laying down a flag against your nation or your neighborhood. It's about raising the flag of your family, your crest in the midst of your neighborhood for the sake of the neighborhood, for the sake of the city, for the sake of the town. And ultimately, if it has to be for the sake of the empire, call it a country's a joke. It's an empire. It's a crumbling empire. And that's why we're struggling with it. anyway, the pursuit of happiness now, what do I think about this? I think that the Christian should pursue contentment. And that if you understand happiness in its context, that's sort of what it's getting at. Because the uh, the mad Bacallian festival that we're, we're living in now, this is not really what they were getting at. I mean, uh, Jefferson may have had his evenings, but, but it wasn't like, and, and uh, Franklin for sure, but it, it wasn't as though they envisioned a world without thinking men who never did their duties. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, they all were very ingenuitive, uh, enterprising people, and they believed in an enterprising society, and that pursuit of an enterprising society would bring satisfaction at the end of the day. And to some extent, they're spot on. That's what the Ten Commandments teach. So we should absolutely like be okay with this, but reckon that whatever, <laughs> whatever the Lord has endowed you with is whatever you've got at the moment. And so if you're a slave, then he has not endowed you with the inalienable right of freedom. Someone has, ina- has alienated you. If you got yourself put in that situation through your own bad decision, so you sold yourself into it, uh, or if you get conquered, it, well, I, it's not up to you then, is it now? And, and you're, you're like, Fisk, you're not, we're not going to get conquered and made into slaves. You know what? I plan to be here 40 more years, and it's changed a lot in the 40 I've been here. So I'm just not counting anything off the table, straight up, you know? And if Jesus comes back today, I'm happy with that one too. But what I'm going to do is not let anyone enslave me on accident. I'm going to recognize what my debts are and see how, if I do carry them my whole life, it is effectively working for somebody else. It is always going to be on my conscience, over my head. I will be, well, to some extent, ashamed of it. And then at least I got to say that I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to know that I have this debt. I am a good slave, a good servant, a good bond servant. I will fulfill my duty as to the king, right? As to the Lord. And then if I achieve my financial freedom and I'm able to go and be a Lord to others, I'm going to be a good Lord. 
I'm going to be the kind who knows it's better to give than to receive, who realizes that the job is in fact for the person filling the job and it should be a good one, right? Now, again, how many of us are in those situations? I'm not. Well, I guess I am. I got two that work for me, but you are, maybe, maybe not. If you're a parent in the home, it's the same reality with your kids. So, um, yeah, pursuit of happiness, when we understand it as to live where you are, recognizing the value of other people around you and their need, right? Uh, their need for you to love them, then this is good. But, you know, the, the word by itself is a massive problem. And now, I mean, I'll, you're not going to hear me quote this very often because people are going to misunderstand it and take it as a license tool, more or less. So thanks for all you do, he says, and you're welcome. James has a bit of a longer one here. He says, good morning and blessings to you. Blessings right back at you, James. I'm not even sure what that means, I guess, but I'll pray for you right now. James? Yeah, whoever you are, God be, God be with you. Um, I am a member of the NLCMS congregation in Maryland. Our elders, along with our interim pastor, have recently decided to offer virtual communion. <laughs> I saw the interim. I'm sorry. Um, over the live stream with each household providing their own elements. We talked about this with Dr. Mambaro earlier. Uh, they noticed, the notice was sent a few days ago and will be the first occurrence of it. I have been praying and meditating over relevant scripture passages daily and have decided my house will not participate since it's clearly not communion. Even as Winglian must reject it since St. Paul taught that it ought to come from one loaf, just as we are one body. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know if I would have gone quite that route, but, and I would say that this is what Zwinglianism—this is what Zwinglianism or sacramentarianism, uh, general Protestantism—should be fine with doing because they don't really think it's really him anyway. So whatever, you know, unless it's about not meeting together, some are in the habit of doing in obedience, which maybe they're better on this than we are. I don't know, except you know, rarity in in most of those circles compared to weekly for us. But um, saying it's clearly not communion, I'm not quite—I'm I'm not quite there with you. What I can say is, I don't know if it is. And since I don't know if it is, I'm going to err on the side of knowing <laughs> as opposed to the side of not knowing. So, I mean, I don't know. If if you have a relationship with your pastor and he knows you and visits you in your home and, and gives you shut in care and then one day the world's falling apart and we're all going to die and he has to give you the Lord's Supper over virtual... Ki- I'm, I, you're really down a bad rabbit trail at this point though, right? And that's kind of your point. And, and but the, the point is, you just don't know. The more things you insert into the equation that Jesus instituted, the more you're like, well, we're adding stuff that we hope he blesses. That's nice, this hope you have. It's presumptuous, though, particularly if it goes along with other things um, that, that maybe are not as from the Bible. Now, I can't say that's what's happening where, where you are, um, but I can say that like nationally, this is just not a good movement right now. It's not helping us. This is Christianity is not going to come through this stronger in institutional form. Now, I will say if you're going to church, where they're actually going to church, everyone who I know who's going to a real church right now, those churches are getting stronger. Everybody. They're just, they're like growing by leaps and bounds. Like unbelievable. You you can't believe what your faith was a year ago. I, what, I, I got to sell it to you? I don't know. You got to go. Um, now for the question, I am, and James can't, right? That's the problem. Uh, for the question, I'm concerned that this practice will cause us to lose our Lutheran identity and we will systematically reject everything we confess about communion. Well, that's that's the, the rabbit trail it's begun on, right? Can repentance happen? Sure. Uh, I long for normal communion but refuse to feed my family junk food in place of true bread. Uh, thanks for whatever advice you can provide. Yeah. Um, well, I think you're right to, to not participate because your conscience won't let you. The second thing to do is to talk to your pastor about your conscience. Now, you have an interim pastor. It's a fine line, this world of interim pastors, and not all church bodies have these things, but, but we do. And in theory, they're supposed to smooth the gears between pastoral transitions. 
not been my experience. Uh, normally what they do is cause a lot of problems, start new things that weren't there before. So everyone comes at you, come in as a new guy after this and you're all, fl- everyone's flustered. No one knows what's going on. Uh, and this is exactly it. So like we have a new guy with no real authority and he's just going to start doing something, you know, 2000 years of Christianity, we'll do it now. Right. In between. Well, you don't have a real shepherd. I have no accountability, really. <laughs> Can you see this? Whoever you are? I mean, I'm not mad at you. And I really, it's just, it's just maybe a bit um, unaware. And you're tr- probably what's happening, though, is he's really trying to help. Because there's a whole other side to this, which is we're afraid that this disease is killing people everywhere all the time. So we can't go out and we can't get it. And as a result, we need to make sure people can get communion anyway, somehow for their faith, because that will help them, right? Can you see how the, the math is working in their heads? I get it. They're going too fast. They didn't think about a few things. Who has time to think these days? <laughs> so so they're, they're trying to do the right thing. And now here they are doing the right thing because they're blown a block. They are blown about by every wind of teaching. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. Hey, what, what do you want me to do? Um, you, you need to talk to your pastor, your inner pastor, and tell him, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, I would do it as gently as you can and asking him um, if there's any way uh, that you guys can come to a solution on this because it scares you. I, I, I don't know what he's going to say, and I don't know how this can really end well. But I had a conversation with a friend the other day that went like this. It was like, hey, so there's this thing that's wrong, and I feel like I should probably say something about it because that would be true to say this thing. And I would say it truly and gently because that's what reconciliation would require for us as Christians. But I'm concerned because I'm pretty sure that it won't work, this true speaking I've got to go do. And so what should I do? (laughs) So so what you're telling me is you feel like you should tell the truth, but the truth will get you in trouble. So you want to know if you can not tell the truth in some way? (laughs) We should stop that approach and instead deal with it. Yeah, you might say it wrong and they might get offended. That means their boundaries are poor. So have your own. Don't get offended back. Say, why are you offended? I'm sorry. Please explain. And now, hey, there's a whole book about talking to people with asking questions. But you have to really engage. Um, You have to find out where they really are if you're ever going to share with them. And then where you are now, again, is you're in a very different place than your pastor and your elders. You have a completely different experience. You listen to me. Sorry. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm reckoning with this in real time where I am, I'm in a different place than you guys are. I'm not in Maryland, right? So the whole country right now, wherever you are, town, city, all different states, they are all having different experiences. They're all different belief systems about what's going on, different local mythologies about the pandemic. It's weird, isn't it? This is why nothing seems to line up from all over the place. And what really has been exposed is our former belief that we all understood, and we're all, we're working together with the same ideas. We weren't. We were believing the same lie. And so we're able to ignore things because we thought the lie was true, truer than the things we were ignoring. Now it's in our faces. And we have a number of different reactions. But what you're bothered by now is this particular lie has gotten so strong where you are that you're smelling it going at what I think the entire attack is to get us to stop taking the Lord's Supper together. I really believe that's what this is from the devil's point of view. Why would it not be? It's all he ever tries to do, kill babies and stop people from communion and grace. <laughs> it's his game plan the entire time. So it, here it is, right? And you're seeing this, Pastor, what do I do? You got to say that to him. Pastor, I think we're going to lose the Lord's Supper. I, I think we're going to lose it. Help. Now, if he doesn't listen, he doesn't want to talk, he dismisses you, he poo-poos you, he pushes you away, you really don't have a choice. Uh, you got to go talk to the elders. 
And then if they also won't listen, then you got to leave. If you really are trying to find reconciliation and they won't, right? Now, I'm not saying that's where you go first. Try to make that the last thing you do. But don't pretend that there aren't churches that decide to abandon the gospel. And it doesn't happen in one big fell moment where the devil sweeps in and says, bow to me. (laughs) It's very slowly. Lukewarm? Ever heard the term? Lukewarm? Uh, Revelation letters? I should read Laodicean one sometime. It, it, it's too easy as a narcissist to assume that you're the Laodicean church and you're the only one who's not like them. So, so be careful with that one. But at the same time, uh, lukewarmness is a, is a real threat, a very, very real threat. Daniel, Daniel says this. Mm. If the vaccine works against, excuse me, if the vaccine works, this is for COVID, right? So that we form an immune response against the spike protein. We are also training the female body to attack syncytin uh, one, which could lead to infertility in women of an unspecified duration. That's all in quotes. Um, and question from Daniel, is this murder abortion? If it's a forced injection, is the state and or are the women being injected guilty of murder abortion? Uh, if it's voluntary, are the women guilty of murder abortion? Thank you for your time, Pastor. How do you feel about uh, drug babies? Honestly, like heroin kids. They're born and the mom's a heroin addict. They're not going to have the same mental capabilities of most people. They may have other emotional trials and struggles. Their life is going to be hard no matter what. Whose fault is that? So if you've been suckled on the um, the nurse of the American mythology, Morning in America on TV, cable, Nickelodeon, all that kind of stuff, right? ESPN and the like, all the way into TikTok right now. So you're like, what are those things? Patrick Fisker and old man. Yeah, TikTok. Okay, same idea. If you're just living in that, I'm pretty sure when I watch you do incredibly terroristic and horrific things to yourself and others verbally, emotionally, or scientifically, I'm going to be right there with Jesus and Stephen basically saying, I think they're insane. They don't really see it. They don't. Which is why then your question has to be very, very couched here for a particular scenario in which we don't have a lot of information. So to be sure, if a police state or state of any kind were to enforce any kind of injection on people that would cause their sterility, uh, as Christians, we would call that wrong, uh, tyrannical against the family, against the sixth commandment, against order, the fourth commandment, and then thereby really against God. It's an attack on God. Now, I can't take one quote on an email from you as saying that's what this vaccine is going to do. I know there are corners of the internet that are really, really concerned about uh, whether it be autism, whether it be um, allergic reactions, whether it be uh, this kind of thing, infertility and the potential sterilization of women, uh, which, by the way, did anyone ever tell you that too much use of the birth control can cause some of the same stuff, the pill? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of chemicals in your body for decades. We'll come back to that maybe. Um, trying to pin down enough information to say anything about any of this is impossible. But that's where you also have to be nervous about anything that's being given to you by people who aren't Christians. You're just going to trust them? I mean, if you want to, I'm not going to stop you, but please don't ask me as a Christian and a pastor to tell you that's what the Bible says you should do. The Bible says not to be a fool. It's very, very clear. 
And we live in an age of great tomfoolery where people boast of their foolhardiness and they think nothing can touch them. The Bible talks about that too. Usually it's not good. <laughs> it's bad times when the, when, the, when the king is a fool. So um, I cannot answer your question in specificity. I can tell you that to be sure, if this is indeed, if there were indeed a, a injection that made women sterile and they were lied to and took it, that's great evil, isn't it now? Yeah, obviously it's a great evil. I don't know. Really you have to talk to that. Everyone knows that. Would it be murder? Uh, no, sterilization is not abortion. So um, Frisbee was talking about this when she, she filled me in on this question a little bit. She said, I mean, the, the, you, you got to ask a little bit more about what is going on to stop the birth or the pregnancy from happening, because there is a distinction between contraception, that is not conceiving, and abortion, that is killing the conceived baby, right? Conception is the point. And the reason why I have and will continue to speak against the use of chemical birth control in all its forms is because on that matter, it can prevent conception and it can cause the conceived fetus to not implant in the uterine wall because the uterine wall has been reduced in its quality through the use of this particular chemical that makes it think it's already pregnant. There's already a placenta implanted in the wall. And so it doesn't want any more. And that's what you're putting your brand new conceived baby into when you're on the pill because you don't want to have the baby, but you had sex and so you have the baby and now you just don't have a body to receive the baby because that's a potential that the pill uses and that's on purpose. That's how it works. One of three ways. I'm going to tell you as a Christian, that's a pretty bad idea. <laughs> it's possible to use the pill and never abort your child. It's possible. How long are you going to do it? And that's to say nothing of, um, you know, how many times are you going to risk that, that uh, uh, Russian roulette? And then, how many years of having your uterine lining tricked into being in the third tri- or the first trimester, midway into the first trimester of uh, of your of your pregnancy, which is uh, often the worst one <laughs> emotionally? Uh, so you got to live in that state all this time, tricking your body into thinking it's pregnant. It makes certain parts of your body swell because of that reason as well, which probably isn't good to pretend to be in a pre-pregnant state with that part of your body that's you know it goes back and forth with babies and does different things. Put that in a pre-pregnant state artificially for twenty years. And you, you don't think that has anything to do with cancer? I mean, I know, I know. It's like corners of the internet. Who do you trust? But it just, the logic doesn't add up to me as Christians on this one. Now, contraception, to prevent conception is a whole different topic, requiring a much more nuanced care of souls, I think, than abortion, right? Or abortifacient possibilities. So what you're saying here, though, from what it sounds like, and from the little tiny bit, I haven't even searched in these corners because I really, I can't use this information publicly. I can't. I can't use it as a pastor. It's not reliable. Okay. I got to talk about things like allergy reactions that are real. I got to talk about things like abortifacient tests being used by Pfizer. Those things I can talk about. But the idea that uh, the potential somehow scientifically down the road for um, infertility due to non-uterine implantation issues, same kind of issues with the, with the placenta, um, I am not one to speak to that or no. It sounds like a really terrible horror story. It sounds terrifying. I pray whoever's in charge of this information is paying attention to that. Because that's terrible if that's true. But white noise, wake up. White noise, you don't know. Now, that's a good reason not to shoot something into your body, right? For me, that's where I'm at. I don't know enough. I used to trust the medical professional industry immensely. I want to still. I'm trying to figure out where. And frankly, anything that's new right now, I'm skeptical of. (laughs) Uh, If it's in Grey's Anatomy, I'm a little more sure that is right, right? And somewhere between that is a lot of really good people trying to do their best 
in a world where there are a lot of really bad people trying to take advantage of everybody. I don't blame you, but when it comes to new vaccines, hastily put out doing RNA work, I'm just not there. And but but I'm not going to say, well, every corner rumor you hear is therefore true. Now you you gave us a quote and that's from some scientists who say maybe, right? Okay. Well, let me say this. This is why moving fast is bad. If you're in a hurry, you are more likely to make mistakes. I got a daughter who's just like me. Just like that, in fact, what I just did. Like, wherever we go, we hit the wall, we kick the chair. It's constant. We're both quite um, athletic, too. So we'll not just kick the chair and trip. We won't fall. And we'll land pretty well. And you're like the cat. You've seen the cat do this, right? Where they like kind of fall and they kind of stand up and they're like, yeah, I meant to do that. That's sort of like my hasty life. But the thing is, it's haste. That's just it. It's hurry for both her and I. I watch her do it. She's running every time. I must be too. Haste, oh, makes waste. Haste is the opportunity to miss good ideas. Haste is the opportunity to miss good things. So the hastiness of healthcare recently seems to me to be at the level where I'm not willing to put my risk into that category as opposed to the risk I'm observing in COVID. Now, I'm observing one thing. Other people are observing other things. It's different everywhere. But what I'm not seeing is dead bodies everywhere. What I'm not seeing is members of my congregation dying. Not from this particularly. There's a bunch of other stuff going on. They're dying for other reasons, but not this one. So I'm, I'm less worried about this than I am worried about, say, a rush to market big pharma solution to life. That, that's, that's me. But, but look, anytime you put something in your body, you don't know what's going to happen. That's why they make you sit around whenever you get any of the, these shots. Because any shots you put in your body, different bodies react differently to them. The idea that there's this magical place called the doctor's office where everybody gets the same thing and it always works the same way is, is why they don't call it, is not why they call it a practice. It's called a practice because different people and their bodies operate with different biochemical realities. And what your genes and your epigenetics and your diet and your exercise and your sleep cycles allow you to do and your body does with your backgrounds and all that, I mean, it's all different. So that's where you need to figure out your own health and advocate for it and not trust any system made by men. And then maybe realize that your health is less important than being ready to die when you do. You know what I'm saying? So, oh, oh uh, yawn, J-A-A-N, his name is pronounced yawn. It's Estonian. We were just talking about Estonians and Latvians next to each other and slightly different. Yes. Um, he writes and says this, my confirmation verse is, <laughs> I remember listening to this. I felt bad for you, dude. Uh, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the gospel of the Lord. (laughs) I have no problem finding the law there. Yeah, I bet you do. And try to find the gospel in much was given. How do I correctly understand this passage? And should I make it my main sword or find another blade? Hey, if it's the sword you're given, like uh, Lex Tempera Cusat, man, go, go. (laughs) Um, Here's here's what I would say. First off, do you like Spider-Man? Because you have the Spider-Man Bible verse. This is what the uncle says to Spider-Man before he dies. That to whom much is given, much will be required, right? A great power comes great responsibility. 
that's a really nice truth that people quote all the time. And it's actually in the Bible like this as your Bible verse. And yet it's as your confirmation verse. And it is bigger than just that. Cause it's not just about general authority or general power or being a good person. He's talking about believing in the true God. So the fact of this verse, the, the gospel of this verse is that you cannot have this verse. If you're not already in the blood of Jesus. Everyone to whom much was given, which you've been assuming right there. Yeah, that's it. Much was given. That's you. It says right there, you are the one to whom much was given. I'd say, like, cut off the rest of the verse for a little while. Try to learn just that first part. Everyone to whom much was given in Greek. And say just that part without the rest of it in Greek to yourself for like a month. And then go and kind of figure out how to add the rest of it in. But start with the assumption. You've been given much. Remember that. Never let any of the rest of it, from him to whom they entrust so much, they will demand all the more. It's not saying you better or else. It's saying just get ready for it. You're going to be giving things. Own it. That's it. I mean, so you can take law and gospel is perspective. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are texts in scripture that certainly lean one direction or another on the surface, but much of it is basically who are you? Are you the son of God baptized into Jesus? Well, then even the law ultimately becomes what he's going to fulfill in you. So it's still gospel. Now it'll accuse you. Your conscience is going to reckon with it and all these other ways because your flesh is still here. So that that's there. And the law then kills and attacks that. But the, the holy person within you is inspired by this law, desires this law. You don't need to talk about uses. You need to talk about good, evil, and Jesus. There are uses. We can talk about it. But if you want to argue about it, I don't want to talk about it. The fact is, huh? what we've been given in the scriptures is much. What you've been given in Christ is more than much. It is infinite. And to you to whom the infinite has been given, rejoice. You're going to be given more. So you can give more. So you can give more and more. Whatever that might be. Whether it be your confession as you sit amongst dust and ashes and refuse to let your faith be taken from you. Or whether it be as you overflow with gifts that you have realized are no good to you unless you share them. You know? So, I hope that helps. It's, I think it's a pretty good sword, man. Because, well, but I said I was sorry for you because here's the, this is the thing. So the pastor who's going through and just like giving you law verses on the surface, that guy ain't really thinking this one through too much, right? Um, and uh, so there is a point at which ideally your confirmation versus one you understand and believe. <laughs> That's really what you want. Uh, but but to have it be um, uh, given to you, whatever it is, I think it's even better because that's the authority from outside of you, right? That God gave you that verse. And the one to whom much is given, that's you. Just cling to that. Cling to that. It wouldn't have been given to you if this wasn't you. Look how much has been given you. A verse that is a challenge. No sweet water cake for you. Uh, so, uh, Jan, thank you for asking and watching in Estonia. That's sweet action right there. American Dream actually watches the show and has written in this. It's amazing. Yeah. Pastor Fisk, what is the place you speak? Uh, what is the place you speak of for the Baron? I think this is in reference to me saying there's a place for the Baron in the church. Um, need references, please. American dream says not find anything myself. Not all Baron women have chosen it. True. Challenging topic. True. That's why I don't like to talk about it because generally in our cancel culture, everyone gets offended about everything. And no matter what you say, they put the worst construction on it and try to make it sound like you're attacking them in some way. And no matter how much you're really trying to just talk generally about what we all have to share and recognize is true. Barrenness is a curse in the Bible. There's no question about it. 
did you get it because God cursed you specifically? No. If you're a Christian, everything you get, even your curses, have become blessings. God remembers the barren. That's a Bible verse. Look it up on your own. It's also a book by Katie Sherman. You can get that on Amazon. Really worth your time. Pew Sisters goes with it as well. For you ladies who are trying to figure out how to really be Christians and not these sort of like sanctimonious, pious, uh, scary people that, that sometimes walk around in church. <laughs> yeah. Um, barrenness is a result of the fall. The idea of barren earth, of famine, of sickness, of anything less than fruition is simply death in our midst. And so just as if, say, someone were to, I don't know, get hit by a bolt of lightning and die. Um, I mean, maybe they shouldn't have been out of that storm, but maybe they had nothing to do with it. That's the Job answer. You shouldn't blame yourself so much as blame yourself. (laughs) Own it. We are what we are. The path the Lord has given me is this. And if the path right now is no more sons and daughters, then that is what this broken age is. But I will not let that be a remark upon who my king is, who my father is, and whether I will say that sons are a heritage from Jesus and you should fill your quiver with them. Because we, this is the LCMS, for the fear of making you barren ladies upset, we have shut our mouths about it entirely and stopped encouraging people to have kids. That ain't good. That ain't good at all. Um... Hannah is the person I think of for you, American Dream. If you really want to go somewhere, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. She prays and she does receive a child. I don't send you there because I think you should do that and expect it. I think you should listen to her words when she sings, what she sings about. I think you should hear in them a reflection of Mary's words. Uh, Mary, whose son was of another kind altogether. And what those words sing about and then Simeon and Anna see is a sonship and a brotherhood that goes beyond our own wombs now into, as Bombaro was talking about, the womb of baptism, the womb of, of the supper, however you want to call it, with the word of God coming upon you, admonishing, regenerating, making you. In that, whatever your current baggage is, from your sinful condition, inherited or earned, and you get both kinds. The Lord is your Lord still and has a path for you. My family, I have one son, four daughters, uh, at least one dead son, one dead daughter, and one dead, it was too early to tell. But the other two weren't too early to tell. Uh after that, due to what was clearly a nutrition issue for my wife, uh, uh, probably some form of uh, starvation, not due so much to self-imposed, but due to a low quality of food in the American standard American diet, um, we didn't know what to do. And so uh, we chose the answer of let's not kill any more babies on accident without knowing what's going on with our bodies here. I don't know if that was the right decision or not. It was a decision. We made it. It's passed. I, I regret it pretty regularly. But it means we're barren right now. We're still traveling years for at least another seven, probably. And we, we cut off, what was that, seven now? 14 years? Out of fear. I did it out of fear. But now I got to own it, too. Does that mean we're done? No. Know what I got? I got sons everywhere I look. Everywhere I look, there's another young man in need of a smiling male face that's not afraid. That's willing to say, hey, man, what's up? How you doing? Standing up today? You surviving? Every single one of those boys is a son. If you choose it to be so. 
You adopt them with love. Not not a name. Don't try to take their father's place. Just be another. Be a brother. Right? Stand up again. Um, and now I'm talking to guys here, but ladies, you can do the same thing. You can be a mother to all the sons without fathers. You know what you got right now out there in that brotherless age? You got a lot of 20 to 40-year-old men who don't have a mother who just loves them. Trained by American TV, you have mothers who criticize. Moms, before you get mad at me and criticize me. (sighs) It's such a tough topic. That's why I keep wandering from it. There's no solution. There is only suffering. Like any other issue of grief or death, when you face the breaking of your body and your inability as a humanitarian to fix it, you have a choice. Either this is God's will for you or you hate God. And you don't hate God. So it's God's will for you. Which means that he needs you to see somebody else right now. Who might that be? I don't know. That's wherever you are. But there's sons and daughters everywhere. And they're all in need of brotherhood, sisterhood, motherhood, and fatherhood. So that's where I would go just in general in the church. That when you come to church as a barren person, you know what I see a lot of in church? I see women who don't know how to handle, I shouldn't say this, this will be taken the wrong way. I don't see a lot of this. I have seen it. And you who are thinking it's you, I'm not talking to you, so stop it. (laughs) I see some mothers who could use a little help. I see some grandmothers who could use a little help with the baby they're bringing to church. Because the mom's not there. So, you know, um, there's lots of places to help. And even a mother who's doing pretty well, which most of them are. (laughs) Yeah, you. (laughs) Um, They still could use help, right? Another pair of hands, a friend. That's the idea, is that we adopt each other. So what's the place of the baron? You're the mother right away. You have the hands to be the mother to everybody else and to help the mothers that are there. Uh, and so that, that's where I go with it. And, and for me, I'm trying to remember that I have one son by blood and I have lots and lots of sons um, by word these days and to own that and, and rejoice in that, that I've been given that position. And you know my own, my own mistakes and past behind me, uh, I will press on toward the goal. Uh, for the, the upward call. And on that, by the way, let me say that um, uh, medical sterilization of Christians, because you don't know what else to do, I'm not telling you don't do it. Uh, I'm saying I don't think I should have done it. And I wish I'd thought about it more and not done it. Um, at the same time, in the middle of it, I had no idea how to go on because I couldn't watch my wife do that again in the next three months. I just couldn't do it. And don't get me wrong. It's not like we were trying three months. It's not like we were um, being unaware of the needs of a woman postpartum and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, But it was just three in one year, you know, two in the hospital. I mean, it's just, it just, I didn't know what to do. Um, And, uh, and now looking back, it's like, well, you could have been stronger. It's easy to say. It's easy to say. Uh, I wish I had been. That's not easy to say. So I'll leave that there. Um, But if you are barren because the Lord has called you unto it, if you are single because the Lord has called you unto it, it's the same answer we got everywhere else. This is what the Lord's will is for you right now. And under grace, it's a gift. It was wrath under the curse. But now the days are redeemed. How are they redeemed? Uh, To make the best use of the time. For what? To remember that the days are redeemed and that the people are the only thing getting out of this if they're in Jesus. And the rest are just going to burn. Huh? Ah, we don't like to say that these days. We're afraid of saying, why? It's just the truth. 
American Dream, thank you. I hope that helped. That's such a tough issue, and I, I probably lost a number of <laughs> viewers in the answer, but so be it. I, I can't, I can't pretend to not talk about that stuff anymore. It's just too real. It's too. It's everywhere too. So many ladies struggle with this, and so many ladies struggle with miscarriages, and I mean, ladies, men as well. And we never, we hide it. And that's where I say the church has a place for us. You don't have to come and boast about it, but. There is healing for all wounds in the blood of Jesus. Straight up. Um, Jedi Knight, Anakin Crinchwalker, who also had a super chat earlier, we'll try to get to, although it's 11 and I got to go to a shooting event. Uh, he says, uh, something I'd like to get better understanding on here, intercessory, praying in the spirit, et cetera, are the, uh, what is the ethos that dis, uh, differentiates them? So intercessory prayer, prayer in the spirit. Um, biblically, nothing, nothing. Uh, if people want to read dogmatic distinctions into flavors of language describing prayer by Paul, you know, petitions, supplications, intercessions, I mean, those words all have meanings and nuances, but they're not really meant for dogmatizing a final solution or something. They're meant for pondering what it means to pray and considering your own prayer life according to those varieties. So an intercessory prayer, you would be between someone else and their needs, right? Most of what the church usually does in the prayers of the church, because we're all just kind of greedy in our prayers, is intercessory prayer. Lord, please give us this stuff. It's most of what we do uh, when we ask. Um, as groups, the pastors usually prepare something else that says more because, you know, and that's the part we sleep through. Um, right. Uh, so what's the ethos that differentiates them praying in the spirit? I don't know what that one means. Um, you know, when, when John says I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day, I'm pretty sure he's in the word of God is what he's talking about. Uh, so to pray in the spirit, I would have to say is to pray according to the word of God. Uh, if we do it biblically, so like what we're doing with the sons of Solomon, praying Psalm 123, 125, 127 in the morning, uh, that, that is praying in the spirit guaranteed. Uh, is there some other nuanced meaning that Paul might use once? Uh, maybe, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang too much on, on any of that. Um, so do, 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 let's see here. You did leave that, uh, Jedi Knight. Actually, let's get out of here. Let's go back over to this. Uh, Jedi Knight did leave this question for us earlier. He says, uh, sounds like indulgences, just like back then you must say the magic words in the pamphlet today to agree to be made free from your guilt, purgatory canceling. Um, I'm not sure what conversation you were connected to on that one there. Uh, so I just got to leave it and say, thanks for the comment and clarify on discord. If you want, if you joined the mad Christian discord, you certainly should. Do you support me on Patreon? Five bucks a month really is how all this works. And that would be great. If you aren't doing that already, uh, you can usually find that in the links below or just search for me, Red Fisk on Patreon. Uh, Joshua project says this. Thanks for the advice. Oh, I can't, I can't read it. Uh, uh-uh. Thanks for the advice. A few weeks ago, I found an LCMS church and started catechism with a faithful pastor. God bless you. Well, good. That's good to hear it. Um, amen to that. Uh, not all Lutheran churches. I saw someone else earlier talking about, you know, being interested in Lutheranism. Uh, not all Lutherans are the same. Lutheranism, all isms are kind of bad. Once something becomes an ism, that means it's not what it is. It's some other thing that has like resulted. And so you got to go back and find you know, what does it mean to be Lutheran? It just means we're Western Catholic Christians. So, so we're not Eastern Orthodox and we're pretty sure the Pope is not in charge. But then there's a lot of other stuff from what you would call the Catholic heritage that's in the Bible. And we're like, that stuff matters still. And that's why we're not Protestants like everybody else is because you don't believe some Bible stuff, right? But if you go into Lutheran churches, you're going to find a bunch of people who do all sorts of stuff. It just depends. I can't tell you until you walk in and talk to the pastor. It's really random. And I think that's everywhere. But it, it is. Babylon, here we are. So that brings us through those. I think, I think, I think I have gotten through all of our questions and stuff for the day. And I want to chat more because uh, Bombardo got me going. He really has me interested in 
again, talking about cultural revolution from a Christian point of view, which is not to revolt by going out with arms, but is to do the opposite of the, of the big mainstream by coming near in the family with words, right? So that the way that we know the church survives in every society, including oppressive ones, is when the father opens his mouth as a king of the house, priest of the house, prophet of the house, father. That's what it means. All those things, right? And under the stead and headship of Jesus Christ, ordained and authorized to feed, govern, and care for these people, for their good, to actually pursue that by teaching them of who Jesus is, according to the scriptures. And as Bombaro pointed out, maybe sing a song. Culture and song, they do go together. There's a danger in music. You can idolize it, but at the same time, it has a knack. It has a knack for driving those words in deeper and deeper. The words that keep you from wallowing in the muck with all of those who have no hope. And one of those who lift up your head all the time as you see the day approaching. Not afraid to be called insane by a completely mad and insane world. Glad to be woken up for reals from the influence of the chaos and the dark powers of this present age. Knowing for certain that Jesus Christ is risen. That's the payment, the atonement, the universal atonement for all mankind. That means you, you, you are immortal now. He won't be long. Anyway, today could be the day you die. If it's not today, it might as well be a day to know you're going to die well because you're in Jesus Christ. My name is Jonathan Fisk. I'm here to rescue you. This has been the Saturday morning chill. Don't stick around. We'll see you guys next week. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? (laughs) 